Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Okumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's not exactly the most pressing global concern in the face of climate change, but winemaking really is already having to adapt. Our wine aficionado correspondent explains the new grapes, new methods, and new wine regions in a warming world. And India's explosives business is booming. See what I did there? It plays an essential part in building new infrastructure. And for the countries looking to trade less with China, India's explosives offer an alternative. First up, though. A march in Paris this weekend drew a remarkable crowd. French leaders, including six former prime ministers, stood before 100,000 people singing the national anthem. They held a banner which read, For the Republic Against Anti-Semitism, and marched through the capital city's streets in solidarity with French Jews. Like so many public gatherings since the conflict in Gaza began, it proved divisive. Public demonstrations against anti-Semitism are spun in some quarters as marches in support of Israel's military campaign. Those in support of Palestinians are often taken to be tacit backing of Hamas. It's clear that in many countries, anti-Semitic acts have shot up since October 7th. But in France, that rise brings particular perils. Since October the 7th, there has been a surge in anti-Semitism in France. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. There's actually been three times as many anti-Semitic acts in one month as there were during the whole of 2022. And French Jews, understandably, are growing increasingly fearful. So when you say anti-Semitic acts, what are we talking about? Sometimes it's been chants in the metro. Sometimes it's been graffiti. There were stars of David stenciled onto residential buildings in and around Paris, which when people found them in the morning recalled, you know, the darkest days in the capital under Nazi occupation. There is now a judicial inquiry into whether those were a Russian destabilization operation. But there have been other physical attacks too. For example, in Lyon, an attack on a young Jewish woman who was stabbed in her home. And it's suspected that that was also motivated by anti-Semitism. And it's clear that there has been a rise in anti-Semitism kind of around the world. Why is, is France particularly worried? 
Well, yes, of course, the phenomenon has been seen in countries across Europe. And in fact, in France, there's also been a rise in anti-Muslim attacks, according to the French interior minister. But as he points out, these have been nothing like as many or as numerous as the acts of anti-Semitism. And I think the real reason that France is particularly concerned is that it's home to both Europe's biggest Jewish population and its biggest Muslim population. And flare-ups in the Middle East have often been transposed to France. If you look back at the beginning of the second Palestinian Intifada in the year 2000, anti-Semitic incidents in France jumped at that time too. We've also over the last decade seen a change in the nature of anti-Semitism. So where it was once very much linked to French neo-Nazism and the extreme right, it's now become a mixture of anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism and far-left politics. So there is now something of a strong political bent to, to all of this in France. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely true. France's struggle against anti-Semitism has become politically divisive. And we saw that at the weekend at the March Against Anti-Semitism. Now, Marine Le Pen on the hard right national rally, she took part in the march and that was deeply controversial in itself. Those on the far left decided not to take part precisely because she was going to be on the streets. And some consider that that was just a pretext to stay away because it's complicated, as often there's confusion between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And those who are linking support for French Jews to support for Israeli bombings, and this has made the debate uh, divisive and also extremely heated. And amid the rise in anti-Semitic acts, how are France's Jews responding? Well, I spent the day in Sarcelle, which is north of Paris, and it has 12,000 Jewish residents. It's actually got an area which is known as Little Jerusalem, full of sort of kosher bakeries and supermarkets and bookstores. And many of the people who live there in the Jewish community, they came from North Africa in the 1950s and the 1960s. So they've been in Sasa for a long time, but they are, I felt, scared. Uh, I spoke to Albert, who's the head waiter at Chez Inoun, which is a kosher restaurant. And he worried that the attacks may escalate locally. An elderly resident that I spoke to in the area told me he felt more anxious today than at any other time during the 55 years he's lived in Sarsal. He showed me he was wearing a cloth cap over his kipper in order to disguise it when he's out on the streets. And so what's being done to, to reduce these fears, to calm these tensions? Well, in Sarcelle, you can tell that the police and military presence has been reinforced. There were military personnel outside the synagogue in Sarcelle when I was there. But the authorities there, I think, have been trying to bring people together for a while. If you look back at 2014, a pro-Palestinian march in Sarcelle turned into a riot and there were arson attacks against Jewish-owned businesses in Little Jerusalem. 
But since then, there's been a big effort, partly by the town hall, to bring religious leaders together. There have been campaigns run against racism and anti-Semitism and public debates trying to raise awareness, especially among young people, about how serious these issues are. Et pour l'instant, à Sarcelles, on est relativement épargné. On a eu quelques petites choses par-ci par-là. Un mauvais regard, quelqu'un qui a mal parlé à quelqu'un d'autre, mais on n'a pas eu de dépôt de plainte, on n'a pas eu d'acte avéré, si vous voulez, dans les 1040, là... Since October the 7th, the mayor of Sarcelles, Patrick Haddad, he told me that the town has been spared significant acts of anti-Semitism so far, but obviously, you know, he's crossing his fingers. And would you say that Sarcelles is kind of a, a microcosm of the tensions in France around this at, at the moment? Well, in some ways, Sarcelles is, is really an exception because it's sort of geographic concentration. But I think it does seem to capture those anxieties about the fate of French Jewry. If, if you think about the population there, many of them, when they came from North Africa in the 1950s and 1960s, families were split and some members chose to go to Israel instead. So there is this almost community feeling there about what happens in Israel and people feel it almost physically what's happened in terms of the terrorist attacks in Israel itself. So there are conversations about staying or leaving in France, and those are probably happening outside Sarcelles in other parts of France as well. But as the mayor of Sarcelles told me, the painful reality that has been brought home to them by the Hamas attacks is that for French Jews, Israel itself no longer feels like a safe option for them today either. Sophie, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Recently, I visited a winery in Essex on London's eastern fringes. Dan Rosenheck is The Economist's data editor. An area best known for the TV show The Only Way is Essex, which documents the excesses of classless suburbanites, it is also home to one of the world's most exciting wineries. Known as Danbury Ridge, it was founded in 2013 and produces Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that are widely seen to be competitive with the hallowed names of Burgundy. So I've heard about this wine from Essex, I have to admit. I was a little skeptical at the outset. What's going on here? So as Mike Bunker, Danbury Ridge's founder and owner, says, Essex has basically stolen Burgundy's climate from 40 years ago. Back in the 1980s, Essex had about 850 growing degree days, a standard measure of heat accumulation for wine growing, per year. Way too cold for anything still. Burgundy was in the 1100s. Now, it's Essex that is in the 1100s, while Burgundy has heated up to 1500. In addition, it turns out that humble Essex actually has optimal soil for growing fine still wine. Its clay formation, known as the London clay, contains a type of clay known as smectite that is best known for being found in Bordeaux, France's other exalted wine region. Okay, so in a sense, the story in Essex is one that has been predicted for some time that climate change would shift where wine is made, where it is made well, I suppose. 
Yeah, Essex is certainly the most convenient and arguably the most compelling example of a broader trend. As the world warms, winemakers who are used to growing specific varieties in specific places under specific conditions now need to change when, where, and how they plant in order to try to preserve the same styles. In some cases, that means moving further away from the equator. In some cases, as far north as Norway or as far south as deep as Patagonia. In other cases, it means moving up. New vineyards are being planted high in the Argentine Andes or up in the Pyrenees in Spain. In some cases, it means changing when you pick. Winemakers all over the world are picking as much as a month or even six weeks ahead of the old harvest times to prevent their wines from getting too sugary and therefore too alcoholic by the time they're fermented. But what's actually going on in the grapes here? What is it that climate change is changing with regard to when you pick? Traditional wine regions are definitely having to adapt or struggle and pay the consequences if they don't. There are two elements that go into deciding when to pick your grapes. One is the straight sugar and acid level. The hotter it is, the more sun you get, the more sugar the grapes get, the less acid they get, the less they taste like a sour lemon, and the more they taste like an overripe prune. That process is pretty much a direct function of heat and sun, and if it's hotter, you can just pick earlier and get the right amount of sugar. The problem is there's also what's going on in the skins. What winemakers call phenolic ripeness are a set of chemicals that exist in grape skins with fancy names like tannins and anthocyanins that affect a wine's texture and aromatic complexity. If the skins aren't sufficiently ripe, Your wine will taste bitter, it will taste green, and it will be miserably astringent. And that process of phenolic ripening is not a direct function of heat. It requires time on the vine. So if you pick too early when it's hot in order to keep your sugar in check, your skins won't be ripe and your wine will be terrible. So it's not simply a matter of get it hot enough and not too hot. Correct. It's about getting it hot enough at the right time of the year. Everywhere in the world, winemakers try to plant the varieties in a given location so that they'll get the skins and the sugar ripe at the same time. And global warming does complicate that. There are tricks that winemakers are trying to balance that out, but ultimately some places may not make it. Or in some cases perhaps change the grapes that they're growing? Yes, there are already changes like that happening. Bordeaux, which has had a very narrow list of permitted varieties going back centuries, just authorized in certain regions seven new grapes, including some very hot climate varieties like Chiriga Nacional from Portugal, hoping to preemptively make changes in planting that will enable them to sustain more warming than they can handle. But some places that already grow warm climate grapes don't have the option of shifting to even later ripening, even warmer climate varieties because they're already at the maximum end of that spectrum. And others may be able to shift, but consumers may not like it. I personally love Pinot Noir from Burgundy and Cabernet Sauvignon from Bordeaux, and I'm not sure what Grenache from Burgundy would taste like. I want my Burgundian Pinot, thank you very much. (laughs) I mean, do you foresee a situation where that just becomes impossible? Are there any other tricks to try to be able to have the very Pinot that you want? 
I think the most exciting and powerful ones probably involve plant genetics. The first is clone selection. The grapevine family is divided up into lots of different varieties. But even within those varietal families, there's a huge diversity of individual clones. So just by shifting to clones that are later ripening and more resistant to drought, viticulturalists can probably offset at least a degree of warming, maybe two. Then on top of that, you've got rootstocks. Much to the surprise, I think, of non-wine connoisseurs, very few wine grapevines in the world actually grow on their own roots thanks to an American aphid called phylloxera that knocked out every vineyard in Europe for 30 years in the 19th century, pretty much every vineyard in the world requires grafting European vines onto American roots. Winemakers get to choose which American roots they plant. Those, too, have a big impact on the characteristics of the vine and therefore the wine. So by picking rootstocks that promote later ripening, you might be able to get even another degree of warming offset, but everything has its limits, and in apocalyptic warming scenarios, none of this will be anywhere close to enough. Will not be the biggest problem that humanity has, to be frank. I think it might. (laughs) We can take catastrophic sea level rise under consideration, but I would really miss my Pinot, thank you very much. If it weren't so early in the day, I would say we should go for a glass of wine right now. My mouth's been watering. For now, Dan, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Those who want to gauge India's economic prospects often look to businesses that build homes, produce consumer staples, or provide electricity. Right now, each of these sectors is sending mixed messages. Enough good news for hope, but caveats that counsel caution. One industry, though, is sending an unequivocally positive sign. And it's a loud one. I don't know if we have any restrictions against puns, but the explosive industry in India is exploding. Tom Easton is The Economist's Mumbai bureau chief. It's doing far better than anyone could possibly imagine. The stock is now up for seven straight days now, during which it has gained almost 70%. The company's revenue grew by 46%. So when I think of what India produces best, I have to admit, explosives is not top of mind for me. How long has this industry been around in India? That's a good point. It's not a historic industry in India. It's not like China where they had explosives going back hundreds of years. The modern explosive business came to India through the British in the 1940s and the 1950s. And the major, major user of Indian explosives was a company that's now known as Coal India, because India uses a tremendous amount of coal for its energy needs, and it will continue to do so for many years to come. And the coal industry had mines spread throughout the country. And everywhere there was a mine, people created an explosive company to get the veins of coal in the ground. It's a wildly fragmented business. Right now, there are 36 operating companies in the industry, and in the past, there were probably more. And it's not because there were patents, and it's not because there was a rare material, and it was not because there was a rare formula. It's because it was hard to transport it anywhere, and they needed it everywhere. 
And you say that business is really booming now. Right. India is spun an infrastructure boom. It's trying to build all the roads and tunnels and so forth that China has. So it can have a modern economy and it can have manufacturing and everything else. For roads, you have to clear roads. For roads, tunnels, and for buildings, you need cement. For cement, what do you need? You need limestone. How do you get the limestone? You need explosives for it. You also need steel. You need explosives to go and get coal because that's one of the ingredients in steel. You need ore. So once again, you need explosives. So explosives aren't a huge percent of this operation, but they're a critical component in every operation. Now, there is one other area that's become very, very important that we should talk about. What's that? Tell me a bit more, Tom. That's defense. So it's quite striking how China has played a role in so many parts of the development of India at this period. I think India is quite threatened by China. So its defense spending has gone up dramatically. It has really focused a lot of that spending at home. And it's in all sorts of elements of defense. It's in shipbuilding, it's in aircraft parts, it's in any sorts of munitions. But one part of it is all the explosive characteristics that go into having a military. Meanwhile, the government has spun off a company called Munitions India, and it is exporting to multiple other defense departments of countries around the world, and it is entirely sold out into 2025. You can't even book an order with Munitions India. It's not a public company, and there's only a limited amount that we can see into it. But India is going through an IPO boom, and if this company does go public, I'm sure it will be a super hot IPO that goes off with a really big bang. And you mentioned China historically dominated this industry. Why not just continue buying Chinese explosives? Why might some nations be looking to India instead? I think they're quite nervous about dealing with China for many, many reasons. The first is they want to reduce trade to China. But the second thing is they want to reduce their vulnerability for sensitive industries to China. And so the last thing that you want to have happen with a sensitive industry is to have your order delayed or to have your order sidetracked or to have some diplomatic dispute that somehow sidelines something that your defense department thinks is critical. And that can happen if there's some sort of confrontation with China. And whatever you say about India, it really isn't involved in most of the global conflagration. So you would really like to buy all your arms from a very, very neutral third party. And that's India. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be on it. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. A reminder that, man, you really are missing out on some delicious audio horizon broadening if you're not a subscriber, either to our print or digital editions or to our shiny new Economist Podcasts Plus service. Get yourself a free 30-day subscription by going to the show notes. First thing to do after that is head over to Drum Tower, a weekly subscriber-only show on China, which has been looking in-depth at Taiwan and how it fits into a growing geopolitical powder keg. The last episode of a sweeping four-part series dropped yesterday, and all of them are very much worth your time. Go, sign up, listen, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.